And we welcome you to the Thursday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg, and I can hardly believe it, but sitting across from me in this very room is Dr. Art Seer, Clausen Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage College, uh, director of the Clausen Center, author of After the Cold War, and uh, a columnist whose work appears in newspapers across the country. And he has another distinction to add to his resume. He is the first live and in-person morning show guest uh, in 14 months. I mean, not since the curtain of COVID-19 descended on all of us uh, in March of 2020 have we actually had a non-staff guest to the morning show in our studios. So this uh, marks one more indication that perhaps... Uh, life as we somewhat knew it before is is returning bit by bit. Uh, and I'm really pleased that Professor Sear can, uh, can be with us uh, to talk about a number of different uh, issues of, of, of pressing concern, uh, both here and abroad. Professor Sear, we welcome you back to the morning show and welcome you back to our studios. Well, thank you so much, Greg, especially. I certainly share the sentiment. It's nice to be around another human being after months and isolation. Mm-hmm. It's not too much of an exaggeration. Yeah. And uh, your serious programming has been even more important during this time of great challenge. And your integrity certainly comes through on the air and at our college as well as in the wider community. So it really is a privilege as well as a pleasure for me. Thank you. Well, we're so glad to uh, have you back and appreciate all of the contributions that you have made to this program uh, over the course of of many, many years, more than 20 years, as a matter of fact. Wow. Glad to still be around (laughs) (laughs) in several ways. Right. So uh, let's talk about uh, several different things. And actually, it's it's quite a long list of important matters that we need to to talk about. And uh, probably chief among them uh, is the ongoing uh, unrest in the Middle East, uh, I mean, unrest which spilled into violence, uh, held back now by a, a, a ceasefire. Uh, but the conflict between Hamas and Israel is, of course, concerning. And uh, in your column about this, you trace what is kind of a remarkable history in terms of the role that the United States has played in the Middle East in trying to broker peace between uh, longtime bitter foes. And uh, and you single out certain people for sort of special praise for the uh, exceptional significance that they have played uh, in, of course, what is a long time, long running uh, drama. Uh, sketch for our listeners who've n- not had a chance to uh, see this column yet uh, the history that you sketch and why you think it's important for us to think not only about the current moment and current tensions, but to think about kind of the history that is behind all of this. Well, one person I did not highlight in the column is President Harry Truman, who made a very um, uh, characteristically decisive and, from my point of view, courageous and, uh, from the point of view of most people who uh, follow the subject, correct decision to recognize Israel following a history of considerable um, violence between Arabs and the growing Jewish population in uh, Palestine and the surrounding area, there was considerable debate about whether or not the U.S. should recognize the state of Israel. And even back then, exactly 
what kind of diplomatic stance would be most wise, including um, advocacy of a two-state solution as opposed to the kind of loose UN before that League of Nations mandate in that uh, uh, challenging part of the world. And Truman decided to uh, just simply go ahead and recognize Israel. Opposition to that was not founded in anti-Semitism, let me emphasize, but in strategic considerations Mm. on the part of General Marshall, Secretary of State, as well as Secretary of Defense in the Truman administration, who simply felt that it would be strategically unwise for us to uh, formally recognize a population that exists basically in a sea of uh, hostility. Uh, So Truman really deserves a lot of credit, as does Winston Churchill, out of power by then, um, before the end of World War II. The British decided to have a general election. The all-party coalition government was dissolved, and his conservative party, not Churchill himself, uh, were rejected by the voters. But he still had considerable standing, and not just in the U.S. and more touring Europe by that time. And he also supported the creation of the State of Israel. And that's important history that uh, if I had more than 600 words, I would have included. One point to keep in mind, um, especially given the tenor of media discussion and given what people who are strongly committed to to, um, the cause of Israel tend to emphasize, often progress has been made when there has been separation or, or more than the usual tension between the U.S. and our um, friends in Israel. The uh, Camp David agreements, a tremendous achievement of President Carter, which have been durable and I believe have laid the foundation for what continues to be growing uh, political and diplomatic stability in the region, contrary to media headlines. The Camp David agreements in 78-79 were vital in progress that has been made since, including Uh, Jordan's recognition of Israel in 1994. The Camp David agreements, of course, were a basic peace treaty between Egypt and Israel. I think the greatest accomplishment um, of a whole series of positive, uh, creditworthy accomplishments by various U.S. presidents and administrations was the leadership by George H.W. Bush and principally Secretary of State James Baker, in orchestrating the huge international coalition under the auspices of the United Nations, which in 1990-91 strategically um, first isolated Iraq after their unilateral invasion of of Kuwait and then drove Iraq out of Kuwait. Uh, Bush and Baker didn't stop there. They put in place a uh, very, very complicated, in human terms, exhausting, especially for Jim Baker, a strategic diplomatic offensive that went on into the beginning of the Clinton administration. Uh, major conferences, especially in Madrid and in Oslo, which new President Clinton uh, attended, put in place the somewhat autonomous Palestinian Authority that uh, is a source of trouble, but also potentially the source of lasting stability in the Middle East. So sorry for the long-winded answer, as usual, but it it is an unusually complicated subject, but one more, even more than usual, given the nature of headlines and media coverage, uh, some appreciation for history is important. But Carter and Bush, uh, along with Truman, and also Eisenhower in handling the 56 Suez crisis, the most serious by far, believe it or not, it's a, 
uh, afflicted us in that region mm. deserve tremendous credit, and our record overall has been positive. Mm. At, towards the end of your discussion about the, the, the rich and lasting contributions of, of President H.W. Bush and James Baker, you write, Bush and Baker reinvigorated our Mideast leadership, creating a foundation for stability. That legacy continues awaiting U.S. leaders equal to the demanding challenges. Uh, what, what you're suggesting there, I think, is that uh, it's one thing to achieve progress uh, with this really difficult challenge, as President Bush and James Baker managed to do, but then you need people who are willing to, in a sense, follow up, take their place in that ongoing legacy, and uh, I suppose to, to borrow a basketball metaphor, not, not drop the ball. And, uh, and you know, what you're suggesting is it's by no means a, 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 a clear record of, of leaders since Bush and Baker who, uh, who carried on that legacy maybe as you would have, have wanted. Is it fair to say it's been kind of a checkered pattern uh, yeah, in their it, wake? Yeah, and of course it's easy to criticize, and professors and media people are in a good position to do that without any, any direct responsibility, but... Uh, the achievement was quite extraordinary. Had Bush, uh, the first Bush, gotten a second term, I'm quite sure there would have been even greater, uh, perhaps monumental, positive progress in the region. Uh, but at the conclusion of the Gulf War in 1991, the U.S. held sway in the Middle East and Mediterranean and Gulf regions generally. The Soviet Union uh, was in the process, literally, of disintegrating. The uh, but the coalition that they put together um, really removed very strong residual influence that the Soviets and then the Russian regime that succeeded uh, the Soviet Union had with Arab states, dating especially from that 56 Suez crisis. Since that time, Russia, to an incredible degree, along with Iran, has slowly but steadily captured initiative in the region. We've had some positive accomplishments, and it's particularly important to mention in uh, the media generally, and in particular in public radio, in my opinion, that President Trump was able to get one more, in this mm. case, Gulf state, to recognize Israel and deserves credit for that. Uh, I think um, agreeing to move the um, capital of Israel to Jerusalem, the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, without any quid pro quo, without getting anything from the Israelis, was a big mistake on the part of that administration. But uh, relatively recent events to one side, in my opinion, since the Gulf War, the U.S. has not had the kind of sustained, grueling, physically as well as intellectually demanding leadership that was provided during that important, albeit one-term Bush administration. Hmm. And uh, to a remarkable degree, Russia, a, a fundamentally weak economy and fragile political system, however they might like to paint themselves uh, to, to, uh, to those on the outside and Iran, uh, have really become more and more influential in the region. Hmm. So that's the point I was trying to get across. Again, it's easy to be critical, and criticism can be useful. I do think there's an opportunity for a successor administration. Hmm. Neither G.H.W. Bush nor Carter get the kind of credit that they really deserve, in my opinion. 
though I'm quite confident that in their case, as in many other cases, history will provide some redemption. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking today with uh, Dr. Art Sear, Claussen Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage, Director of the Claussen Center, and a monthly visitor to The Morning Show. And today, as maybe you can tell by the, the sound of his voice and mine, we are together in uh, WGTD studios today for the first time uh, in 14 months, and it does feel good to be having a face-to-face conversation today. Uh, we want to talk about uh, the most recent elections in Great Britain, which you wrote about, and uh, you spell out what was, in effect, uh, a victory for the conservative power, the party, that they were basically the overall winners, but you say that it's a mistake to think of these election results too simplistically and that, in fact, the picture is is a bit more complex than that with other parties gaining ground. Tell us more about this complexity and why it matters. Well, we used to think of Britain comfortably as two parties, uh, the Conservative Party, as you indicate, and the Labour Party. Before that, in the 1800s, British politics was dominated by the Conservatives and the Liberal Party succeeded by labor early in the 20th century. But there were always strong regional sentiments and nationalist sentiments. Uh, the most challenging for the, uh, uh, for the uh, national government in London being the long-term Irish rebellion and revolution, which uh, historically, as today, unfortunately, can involve some very, very uh, ruthless and very... Uh, tragic violence on both sides, one unfortunate byproduct of uh, the current administration in uh, London is that um, uh, the way the British have handled Northern Ireland, there has been, at least to some extent, a revival of violence that had been held in abeyance since the Good Friday Accords uh, in 1999. The... um, uh, multi-party situation. That reflects the fact that multi-party politics is becoming more and more important in Britain. The Conservatives won overall, but they're far from being a majority party. Mm. Outside of England, the Scottish National Party, which has had a majority in the regional parliament in Scotland for some time, increased that majority. Um, the Green Party is an environmental party important and increasingly important in Britain as on the continent, increased their support. The good old Liberal Democrats, um, the successor party to the Liberals from the late 1980s, they were part of a national government between with the Conservatives between 2010 and 2015. Uh, they haven't done so well uh, since then, but they did quite well as they have uh, in the last local government election. So it's a really complicated, really complicated trend, tapestry. Hmm. And the colorful, to put it politely, personality of the current <laughs> prime minister, Boris Johnson, and the dominance, to his political credit, he's been able to achieve with a very, very sizable parliamentary majority in the House of Commons in the December 2019 general election. That tends to mask these currents which are going to bubble up more and more. Mm. It's a tough time for the poor old Labor Party, Mm. which has a very responsible, uh, uh, in personal terms, very impressive leader, Keir Starmer, who is much overshadowed by bombastic Boris. Mm. 
Some other countries have had rather bombastic <laughs> leaders, and we might draw some analogies. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, while we're talking about Britain, uh, remind us about the current situation involving Brexit and so on and, and what we can kind of determine from what has happened thus far in terms of what kind of the ramifications of, of their exit from the European Union will mean. Well, the British are, are, are gone from Europe in economic terms, in terms of the European Union. Uh, that was a principal uh, priority theme of Boris Johnson's ascendancy from mayor of London to national power. And uh, he has been extraordinarily successful politically. Britain is no longer in the European Union. Mind you, British trade, British commerce, British investment is still very much involved in the EU since World War II. Um, since shortly before World War II, British, uh, the bulk of British trade has been moving steadily from an international uh, from the international economy to more and more heavy focus in uh, the rest of Europe, a function of the end of empire and uh, global economic trends. It was a big reason for them to join the European Union. Also, they are still a loyal member of NATO. They're a mainstay, a real foundation of the NATO alliance. Uh, they were crucial in getting the Americans, uh, the U.S. and the Canadians into that new alliance in 1949. They're one of the few countries that consistently rain or shine, whatever the weather, political and otherwise, the British maintain their commitment to, Europe, to NATO. So they're not gone from Europe. Mm. But this historically traditional endemic suspicion that they have of too much involvement in the continent has, has resulted in Brexit. So mm. they are gone. Mm. So are we seeing tangible ramifications from that exit? I mean, have we seen, for instance, uh, the economies of various European powers negatively or positively impacted by this? Or, or is it still <laughs> too soon to be uh, trying to draw those kind of conclusions? Uh, no. Stock, stock exchanges on the continent have benefited. In particular, I think in Amsterdam. Um, but generally, there's been an increase of business and a decline in London. Uh, there have been predictions that the continent would replace somewhere on the continent, either Paris or some kind of Frankfurt-Zurich combination, would replace London as the global uh, financial center that it was and remains. So that predates Brexit. It hasn't happened. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, geography infrastructure of expertise means that London, in terms of stocks, in terms of commodities to a degree, in terms of insurance and um, risk management generally, will continue to be very, very important. All kinds of individual business people, especially small business people as usual, have taken it in the neck in terms of higher costs, in terms of um, truck drivers, vital transport for supplies in and out of, of Europe. They've had to fill out more paperwork. Work costs have gone up. It's been tremendously, exponentially made worse by um, the COVID pandemic. But much to my surprise, it has not led to a financial recession, hmm. either in this country or in Europe. Hmm. So overall, the British are doing okay, as the Brexiteers sneeringly <laughs> like to remind us they predicted. <laughs> that everything would be okay. Yeah. Well, Brexit is a function of wealth. 
and also peace more than anything mm-hmm. else. It's vitally important to keep in mind that the idea of a European Union, which developed early in World War II, uh, Jean Monnet, an extremely important pan-European but French um, business and diplomatic leader from a very wealthy um, family that was focused on, I think, uh, the wine business. Uh, he found his way to England and then to Washington as uh, Europe went literally to hell with the Nazi mm-hmm. takeover. And he and a rather small group of others, uh, including John Maynard Keynes from Britain, the great economist, started promoting the idea of a European Union. The idea wasn't commercial business. Um, It wasn't economic in terms of main goal. It was political and strategic. If we can find a way to keep the Germans in check, we can prevent a third nightmare war in Europe. Mm. And that's worked like a charm. A big reason for Brexit... I think probably the biggest is the Europeans don't have to worry about the Germans the way they used to. Mm. And the growth of general uh, post-war prosperity, thanks to the Bretton Woods institutions and keeping protectionism pretty much in check, has provided the the kind of environment of general prosperity for most people that has permitted this kind of activity Mm. without without great economic risk. So it's all to the good. Yeah. I hope that's a clear point. It's mm-hmm. it's not an easy point. Mm-hmm. By the way, I don't know how closely you have followed matters related to COVID uh, on the European continent, but I think that's been an interesting thing for us to watch as as things are at least generally tilting in a very positive direction uh, here in the United States. Uh, there have been <clears throat> certainly resurgences uh, in Europe that have tilted the other direction and make it seem like they are just that they are still contending with uh with the seriousness of this uh in a way that's playing out a little bit differently than it is here and and one wonders what kind of ongoing ramifications that will have for instance for their economies as well just the general well-being of their of their people um you're referring to the fact that the u.s has done pretty well to put it politely, and right? I mean, mildly, right? While well, while we're seeing, at least from time to time, really serious resurgence in Europe. I mean, yeah. in Paris, for instance, on uh, I don't think at the moment, but very recently, on complete shutdown once again because of COVID. So one wonders if maybe the dissemination of vaccines is, for some reason, not proceeding as efficiently there as it has here. I, I, I'm no expert, I don't know, and I don't know how closely you've followed any of that. I, I'm not a public health expert, and I don't presume to talk about uh, um, the disease per se, this terrible pandemic per se, in any kind of an expert way. Um, I do know something about the economics and politics involved. The U.S. is remains the global center um, because of the amount of expertise we have, because of the scale of our society as well as economy and infrastructure, a global leader in medical research, applied research and development, and also distribution. And this great pandemic has uh, uh, has, has served to highlight that. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't presume to go beyond that in any detail, but it's not surprising. We also are remarkably... Um, uh, humane and give priority to humanitarian activities of all kinds, historically as well as currently. And uh, you mentioned it in an email, India, we have provided about $100 million in the last 
year in direct COVID relief, including vaccines currently, but starting with medical equipment, masks, and all, all the literally nuts and bolts of addressing this pandemic starting in March of last year before our own country shut down hmm. in India. And again, the resources and uh, distribution and literally lift capacities of the United States are unprecedented. And given the nature of at least some media commentary about the behavior of uh, this country and our people, I think it's important to underscore this, this point. We are essentially a humanitarian nation in how we relate to others. And when you look at the facts of the pandemic, I think that reality is confirmed. We're speaking with Dr. Art Sear uh, from Carthage College, uh, director of their Claussen Center and a monthly visitor to The Morning Show. You wrote recently about uh, the first 100 days of our, of our new president, uh, uh, Joe Biden. And uh, I was so, uh, so glad that you put this into some historical context, that this is not uh, something that from uh, George Washington's first term that we've been talking about. I mean, that is the first 100 days of an administration. And actually, we can trace the emergence of that uh, to one uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, I think our 32nd president, if I remember correctly. Um, and uh, I, I really... Uh, I, f- I found it just fascinating, and I, and I know a fair amount about FDR, but I learned some things that, that I did not, did not know. Uh, just sketch for our listeners why this was an important benchmark for, for Franklin Roosevelt in, in 1933 and has continued to be uh, since, since his first administration. Well, among other um, uh, tangible Uh, moves and achievements of the Roosevelt administration was the 20th Amendment to the Constitution. Uh, The election is in early November, uh, as we all know. Uh, Before the Roosevelt administration, the president and vice president were not inaugurated until early March. The country was in very serious crisis in early 1933, undeniably. The financial system was in a state of collapse. Um, Our banking system was not functioning Unemployment um, was at approximately 25% in the early 1930s. It was a desperate and revolutionary time. Mind you, the Hoover administration took important moves that provided, speaking of humanitarian relief, provided relief to the people. Uh, Ironically, Herbert Hoover had made his name as Secretary of Commerce Um, especially during the great Mississippi flood of the late 1920s in the Coolidge administration in um, providing, on an unprecedented scale, federal humanitarian relief. However, um, in terms of the public relations and political aspects of the presidency, uh, Hoover was, he projected an image that people saw as insensitive and uncaring, and he didn't seem to be in action. In politics, especially perception, is reality. Also, the country remained in crisis. So FDR made a whole series of moves. The 20th Amendment shows the uh, implicit, constant emphasis on action. Uh, He declared a bank holiday. Uh, He um, had the first modern press conference, I believe. I mean, right Mm -hmm. after the inauguration, he declared a bank holiday, shut down banks, and took steps to reassure the people over the radio 
and also institutionally through legislation to provide, for the first time, insurance for small depositors, especially in banks across the country. Um, the president had his first modern press conference. Teddy Roosevelt, uh, his distant relative, uh, president early in the 20th century, uh, had enjoyed informal banter with reporters. But FDR was the first one who met with reporters. Uh, live press conferences had to wait for the Kennedy administration. But FDR really provided an openness and a sense of activity that was quite striking and quite dramatic and quite ironic, given the fact that the president, as everyone must know today, was paralyzed thanks to a terrible affliction of polio when he was in his 30s and uh, did not have the use of his legs. The first uh, inaugural in 33 is where we get the tremendous phrase and very important phrase, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And he went on to say, less often quoted, hmm. nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed action. Hmm. Quite a political operator hmm. and constantly on the move and seemed to be on the move hmm. uh, in the media hmm. during the first hundred days. And a lot of legislation, relief legislation, went through Congress. In 1930, as well as 32, the Democrats had a gigantic majority in the Congress. I don't minimize the, uh, the work and calculation that went into this, but the Republicans in the Senate could fit into a dining room and the Republicans in the hall could fit into a rather in the house could fit into a rather small meeting hall. Hmm. I really appreciated that you gave us actually several quotes from that famous hmm. inaugural address and you're absolutely right. I mean most people if they know anything from that speech only know the single line. Uh the quote that you shared that that I found the most interesting because it really speaks to kind of uh, FDR's desperate race to accomplish as much as he could uh, for the sake of the country and its economy uh, was when he said this, I shall ask the Congress for broad executive power to wage a war against uh, the emergency as great as the power that would be given to me if we were in fact invaded by a foreign foe. Uh, I mean, that's a that's a really remarkably effective turn of phrase. And it and it speaks to the kind of power that Roosevelt believed that he needed to have in, in the, that desperate moment in our country's history. But it also speaks to uh, exactly why some people did not like Roosevelt and, and very much have worked against that legacy of a U.S. president having that much power. It's just such an interesting moment in our history and it's it's good to revisit it, revisit it. Yes, indeed. Um, I do think we were on the verge of a violent revolution in '33. I don't think we have been close to that any time since. And I lived through the '60s as a very young person when there was a lot of violence in our system. I do think that the uh, actual legislation, including unemployment insurance, social security, things that we take for granted today. Uh, and that are no longer controversial, were considered quite radical and unacceptable by large parts of the population. It really was a radical change. Also putting lots of people to work, especially young men, uh, who are the most likely group to pick up arms and actually uh, take violent action 
in the face of terrible economic circumstances. They were put to work in public works programs. All of this remained, all of this became very controversial in the country. Uh, I think with uh, the benefit of history, uh, to, to reiterate a point, um, that's, that radical action has been confirmed. Mm. Uh, he did stop short of breaking the law, uh, <laughs> which is important. And when he did move uh, in a clearly unconstitutional way in terms of the weight of legal as well as public opinion, choosing words fairly carefully, mm-hmm. to expand the Supreme Court, something that's happened in our history and something to which the Democrats have made a on-paper commitment uh, in the current administration and their political platform, platform uh, he, uh, he was defeated. So we were able to carry out tremendous change in a uh, in a nonviolent context, right? And uh, he became very powerful, but not all powerful. And, uh, yeah, no, and the Constitution <laughs> survived. And after the packing, uh, what was termed the court packing scheme, accurately, was decisively defeated in Congress. The court, which had been rigidly denying, declaring an. Uh, New Deal legislation unconstitutional, the court did become more flexible. Another example to me of the system working. Interesting. There were politicians who were far more extreme than Roosevelt and who were not only preaching but practicing violence. Uh, Father Coughlin, a Catholic priest who happened to be a fascist as well, was enormously influential, not just with American Catholics, another effective radio performer. Uh, Roosevelt actually felt he would uh, lose in 1936. He confided to the few people he trusted, his wife, uh, Harry Hopkins, his mother, and maybe one or two more, that he thought Governor Huey Long, speaking of fascism, our mm-hmm. own our own homegrown elected variety, the totally irresponsible and to some extent criminal and violent, I believe, governor of Louisiana, Roosevelt thought he would lose the Democratic nomination to Long, or even if he managed to survive, that Long would defeat him as a third-party candidate. And uh, uh, one thing FDR was very good at was cal- was sensing the political winds and understanding political currents in the country. Hmm. Uh, Long, as many listeners will know, was assassinated uh, before that possibility could come to pass. Hmm. Interesting to think about how history might have proceeded very differently. Yeah. Um, so what about uh, President Joe Biden's first 100 days? Do you have any kind of assessment you want to share with us? Well, yeah. we all have our biases. I, I believe he was made to order, in a sense. We tend to get a president who's a reaction against the president that we had. And uh, Biden's nature, um, even before uh, his current advanced age, uh, Biden's nature tends to be um, uh, one that emphasize, emphasizes uh, uh, not calmness, but uh, conciliation and pragmatism. A uh, long and overall successful career in the Senate testifies to that. I met him a few times. I worked for 20 years at the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations. Um, the president, John Riley, who hired me, had been Hubert Humphrey's foreign policy assistant. One reason I took the job, among others, it was a good deal riskier than what I was doing at the time at UCLA, my alma mater, but I also thought it potentially the payoff would be much greater than working in a public university bureaucracy and teaching there, and that proved to be true. Uh, John 
knew the generation of younger politicians from the 60s and 70s, not just Democrats, but especially Democrats. And Joe Biden was part of that generation that came in during Watergate as the Vietnam War was winding down. Uh, He really did come across as a regular guy uh, for a senator or politician or Washington factotum. Uh, I assure you, some of them can be rather difficult. I used to remind our staff, remember, in this business, we deal with the great, the near great, and the end great. (laughs) Biden was easy to deal with. His staff liked him. That was a night where they were quite fond of him. Hmm. And that means a lot in any context, but especially in the case of Washington. That says a lot about how, what yeah. somebody is like and, behind and It, it behind was a stabilizing doors. nature, basically, as politicians go. However, uh, he had trouble, like Hubert Humphrey, he tended to talk at great length. And John, who was a fanatic about balanced budgets and maintaining growth and uh, everything else to keep an organization going and succeeding. Uh, He was a stickler on time, and at 5 minutes to 9 p.m., I have more than one memory, he would say, Senator, excuse me, we have time for one more question. And at 9.30, I'm not exaggerating, (laughs) uh, now President Biden would still be talking. So, (laughs) anyway. Interesting. Yeah, but I've always been very positive about him, despite the barnacles and... uh, uh, despite the criticism and downside and inevitable uh, missteps that politicians especially accumulate. Right. And, of course, it's safe to say he's not not uh, not had quite the ferocious pace of, of activity as Roosevelt did in, in 1933. No. Well, it's a very different time. Quite right. right. But I can assure you, for any president, there's an active staff, ambitious uh, younger women and men who are most anxious to make a mark. So I can assure you there's a tremendous amount of activity going on around the president. Hmm. We uh, will finish out, and I wish we had more time because actually you've written uh, a, a couple of different uh, columns that have dealt with uh, the Far East, with Taiwan and with Japan, and uh, and a, col- a column that I think has not yet really appeared in print but which you shared with me uh, electronically this morning uh, a, a column uh, that touches on on South Korea and uh, the visit of of the leader of South Korea uh, for a very special ceremony. Uh, let's give you a chance to uh, tell our listeners uh, a little bit about this really moving moment, which uh, echoes uh, all the way back to the Korean conflict, actually. Uh, Colonel Puckett, Ralph Puckett, um, a truly heroic combat veteran, U.S. Army officer, West Point graduate uh, from Georgia, where a very large number from the South, where a very large number of very effective uh, soldiers uh, in our military have uh, have originated. Uh, I never had the honor of meeting him. I did know who he was. He, his uh, Distinguished Service Cross has been um, upgraded to uh, our Medal of Honor in a White House ceremony that was attended by Moon Jae-in, a military veteran of the ROC Army, the South Korean Army, as well as a human rights lawyer who is also the current president of South Korea. He's the first head of a foreign government who has ever attended a Medal of Honor ceremony. Um, I'm sure the Biden administration um, did this on planned this carefully. It's a very shrewd and subtle move, which I think befits the, speaks well of the current administration. 
Uh, Colonel Puckett, as a very inexperienced young officer, found himself commanding a ranger company in the uh, Korean War relatively early on after the Chinese intervention. He and his ranger company were ordered to occupy Hill 205 uh, in uh, what is now North Korea. Uh, They found themselves surrounded, cut off. They managed to fight off five human wave attacks, and he... uh, ordered his men. He was badly wounded at that point. He had exposed himself to uh, evaluate the terrain and enemy uh, at one point to operate a heavy 50 caliber machine gun himself in defense of a group of his men who had been cut off. Quite an extraordinary performance. He ordered his men to leave him behind and get off the hill Hmm. and get the hell out of there as quickly as they could. They refused to do that and carried him to safety, which which characterizes our military, let me Hmm. emphasize, across the board. But in this case, it was uh, certainly understandable as well as appropriate. Um, He survived. He served with equal distinction in the Vietnam War uh, during my time in the reserves and briefly on active duty. During that time, I was very well aware of, uh, of him, a legendary figure, and it's quite appropriate that he's uh, being honored, mm-hmm. was honored on the 21st. In his mid-90s, he's still with us, so not only his personal example, but also his longevity should be an inspiration for us, especially people like me. <laughs> very good. And uh, and how special for uh, Moon Jae-in to to be on hand for that ceremony. Yeah, quite, yeah, that's that's subtle politics, the best kind. And uh, again, from my bias point of view, it's a, it's kind of a nice contrast with the previous administration. Mm-hmm. You, uh, we will not have time to really touch on uh, any of the complex issues that you raise in columns, both about Taiwan and Japan. Uh, but we have time briefly for this this one point. Um, you you characterize in one of those two columns this region, meaning the Far East, as an often vexing but manageable environment. Uh, so what does it take for us to be able to, to do better in, in this region uh, diplomatically, in particular given the fact that we have stepped away from the, the region with our withdrawal from the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. I mean, w- what do you hope will happen now in the near future? Uh, well, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was uh, dead in the water politically before um, Trump came into office. He's blamed for pulling us out of that. But in point of fact, Hillary Clinton and protectionist pressures are in reality stronger in the Democratic than the Republican Party. She had made clear as had other Democrats, that uh, we weren't going to go along with this treaty. Uh, We live in such a rich and positive environment, uh, commercially and politically, with the end of the Cold War, that there are all kinds of other regional organizations uh, going on, including a new and renewed Southeast Asian um, association that is pursuing um, greater commercial investment and trade cooperation in that part of the world, including with, in Vietnam, which has become one of the leading centers of foreign investment in the world, uh, one of the many positive developments in the world. It's why, at the beginning, I uh, was careful to praise President Trump, among others, for the diplomatic recognition of the UAE mm. and Bahrain of Israel. Uh, 
in terms of international cooperation and international organizations, collaborations that foster commercial activity especially, but not just that. We're living in a very positive time. And uh, the strong countries in um, East Asia are South Korea, certainly Japan, Taiwan. We're currently obsessed with China, a rapidly growing economy, to be sure, in sheer industrial terms, but a country that still is resisting any kind of serious representative government, a country that's trying to hold on to old-fashioned totalitarianism when the world is moving the other way, and a country where undeniably uh, the COVID pandemic originated, I would urge us all to pay close attention to what happens, especially in the U.S. Congress, in the growing debate about whether or, or how exactly did this scourge originate. Was it perhaps in a laboratory in China? Hmm. On that interesting note, we finish out this conversation and... Uh, uh and finish out uh, a discussion that has ranged far and wide, as usual, with uh, our guest, Dr. Art Sear, Claussen Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business, a director of the Claussen Center, author of After the Cold War. Great to have you back in our studios. I look forward to our, our future conversations, and thank you for being part of today's morning show. Thank you, Greg. You're good-hearted and positive, and I really appreciate it.